Not sure how many of you have ever spent any time or, or lived in an older house. Uh, but older houses have, you know, unique quirks, and one of them is that they make noises. So as it gets colder and warmer outside, your house squeaks and creaks and, and groans and pops and, and makes all these weird noises. Well, when we, before we moved here, uh, my wife and I had never really lived in an older house, so we weren't familiar with this. And my first night staying in the house was we, we had moved to St. Louis or driven through St. Louis and we were staying with my parents, and I drove the moving truck up on a Saturday night all by myself uh, later so that we would be ready to move in the next morning. So show up to the house late. I'm the only one there. It's dark, and uh, it's you know the middle of July, so it's hot outside. So the first thing I do is I turn down the air conditioner in the house so that it gets cooler so that I can actually go to sleep. But as I'm going through the house, I realize that the back door has been open like six inches. So nobody else had been in the house, you know, it had been empty, and I show up, and then I think, is there somebody else in the house with me? This, this door's open, and I didn't open it. So, you know, I, I shut the door, I locked the door, I locked all the doors, and then slowly went room by room by room, closet by closet, making sure that there wasn't some crazy squatter man that was going to come out at me when I didn't expect it. So, you know, of course, no, nobody was in the house. Uh, the door had come open by the wind or something. So I, you know, that, that night I went to bed waiting to, to wake up and move in the next day. But as, as the house cooled down, it started making all these noises. And my mind, as I'm, as I'm laying there in the dark, I'm thinking, did I check that closet upstairs? Because I don't really know if I did or not. Um, obviously, there, there still wasn't anybody in the house. And now, now that we've lived there for a while, you know, when we hear these noises in the night, I know that it's just the house making these noises. It, it just does it. It's not that there's some crazy guy upstairs that's going to come down and get me. And to me, the, the, the house making these noises is uh, kind of a picture of creation groaning. Just like our house makes noise when it, when it gets warmer outside and when it gets colder outside, uh, Paul tells us that creation is groaning. Creation longs for and groans for the day when it will be restored. You see, just like us, sin has affected everything. It's affected all of creation so that creation longs for itself to be restored just like we long to be restored. We long for everything that we talked about last week, all the, the bad effects of the fall, us being poor in spirit and us being without hope before God. We long for that to be fixed. But it hasn't happened yet. And because of that, we mourn. The proper response to us being poor in spirit, the proper response to our spiritual poverty or our spiritual bankruptcy that we talked about last week is to mourn. And, and that's what Jesus talks about in the next beatitude. He talks about what our proper response should be to our, the, the, the state that we're really in before God. Because if we, we really get our minds around that, if we really get what the state of our, our hearts and our minds and our souls are, We'll mourn. We'll be, we'll be saddened by that. And so Jesus says that we'll mourn. 
But just like last week, there's also a blessing. Just like last week, there was a blessing for those who are poor in spirit. Tonight, there's a blessing for those of us who mourn. Jesus says that we will receive comfort, which is a good thing. We, we want to be comforted if we're mourning. And we're going to see that the gospel is what brings our comfort. The gospel begins and ends with comfort. It begins with comfort in that uh, we experience redemption by grace through faith in Christ. And that, that comforts us in our state of spiritual poverty, in our state of mourning. And we also experience comfort in the future in that Christ has said that all the wrongs are going to be righted. One day, all the things that, that we long to get fixed about the world and all the things that creation is groaning about will one day be fixed. And so that's how we will be comforted at the end. So that's the main point of tonight's sermon, that the, the poor in spirit mourn, but the gospel begins and ends with comfort. We're going to see this main point fleshed out by asking two questions of the text. We're going to ask, what does it mean to mourn? And then we're going to ask, how are we comforted? Let's go ahead and read the text tonight. Even though we're just covering one beatitude per week, we're going to read all of them because I want us to become more and more familiar with them as a unit as we go through them individually. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage on page 809. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the second beatitude, or or the fourth verse of Matthew chapter 5, is our focus tonight, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now let's focus on our first question. What does it mean to mourn? Well, at its most basic level, if if we boil it down to a a dictionary-type definition of mourning, mourning is, we feel bad, so we feel grief or sorrow, we feel bad when something bad happens. So if something bad happens in the world, something bad happens in our life, we feel bad about it. So if you, if you went out and you asked, you know, a few hundred people, what is mourning? What does it mean to mourn? They're going to give you a definition of, of something like that. Most of them will probably even connect it to, to death or the loss of a loved one. They'll say that's what it means to mourn, to, to grieve something bad when it happens in your life. But the problem with that understanding of mourning, the problem of that understanding of grief is that it fails to understand what what Jesus seems to say is the real reason for mourning, and that's the fact that we're poor in spirit. We don't mourn because of death or loss. We mourn because we're poor in spirit. We We don't mourn 
because bad things happen in the world. We mourn because we are the bad things that happen in the world. And there are two ways we can mourn. There's two ways we do this. We mourn inwardly, and we mourn outwardly. If we don't get the first one right, chances are we're we're never going to get the second one right. So the first thing we do is we, we mourn with an inward focus. This should be our basic reaction to life, our basic reaction to, to who we are as people who are poor in spirit. When, when we sin, when we commit personal sins, when we commit acts against God, it should grieve us, it should mourn us. We should be brokenhearted over the fact that we have broken our relationship with God. The things that we do, the, the thoughts that we think, and the things that we say should all cause us sorrow. We shouldn't just be able to live life the way we live life and be happy about it. We should be broken over our sin. Paul describes this well in Romans 7. He says this. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So Paul talks about this inward battle that's going on within him. This this battle between what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. And he keeps doing the things that he doesn't want to do and and can't do the things that he wants to do. It's kind of a, a, a... tongue twister, but Paul is struggling with the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And at the very end of all of it, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Essentially what he's saying is, I am poor in spirit. I can't do what I want to do, so somebody please kill me. Get me out of here because I can't live the way I want to live. Paul mourns his sin. And when we think about mourning our own sin, when we mourn our personal sin, a question that we can ask ourselves, which I think is helpful, is when we sin, are we more grieved by the fact that our sin affects other people, or are we more grieved because our sin is first and foremost sin against God? You see, do I grieve because my sin affects my wife, or my kids, or my friends, or my family members, or my coworkers? Is that what bothers me? Or does it bother me that I'm sinning against God when I sin? No matter how blatantly, no matter how in your face we sin against another person, our sin is is first and foremost against God. Even if I walk up to somebody and slap them in the face, very clear I sinned against that person. But more important than that, it's my sin against God. You see, the only way, the only reason I know that that's wrong it's because God has given us a law that tells us what's right and what, what right and wrong is. 
And he also gives us the grace that sets us free from that law. Obviously, we should be upset by how our sin affects other people. It should grieve us that our sin affects those we love. But it shouldn't affect us so much that we fail to focus on what we really need to focus on. And that's the fact that our sin is against God. But what does this look like practically? How do we, how do we live this out? I think it looks like us intentionally feeling sorrow over our sin. It looks like us focusing on restoring our relationship with God before we focus on restoring our relationships with others. So, if I'm at home and you know, I, I utter a, a sharp or harsh word against my wife or my kids, it looks like me reconciling with God before I reconcile with them. Now, obviously, that shouldn't be a long process. I shouldn't say, you know, sorry I said that, hun, but I need to go upstairs and pray for three hours and then come downstairs and then I'll be able to rightly apologize. Even just a few moments or a few minutes or a few seconds in, in your mind as you write yourself before God, you confess your sin to Him and then confess it to the other person. Then reconcile with the other person after you've done it rightly with God first. We need to grieve over and fix our, our vertical relationship with God before we focus on all these other relationships which are competing for our attention. So that's mourning with an inward focus. The second way we mourn is with an outward focus. See, once we've wrapped our minds and our hearts around the fact that, that we're the problem, that, that we're the people who are causing bad things to happen in the world, then we can rightly start to grieve over the bad things that do happen in the world. See, it's, I don't think any of you would doubt the fact that bad things happen. We see disease and war and crime and genocide and just item after item after item after item of these bad things that happen in our world. And all of them should grieve us. All of them should cause us sorrow because it's not the way things are supposed to be. We should mourn because the gospel hasn't even begun to transform some parts of the world. And we should mourn because the gospel hasn't even begun to transform some parts of our city. Even right here in Hannibal, there is probably at least one family who is trying to live life without any knowledge of the gospel whatsoever. And it should grieve us that they don't have it yet. I think the most memorable biblical example of this is in Luke 19, where, where Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. If you remember, this is where he's riding on the donkey, and these people just throw their coats down in front of him. They throw their jackets on the ground because they don't even want the donkey that he's riding on to have to walk on bare earth. And they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. These people recognize who Jesus is. They know that He's the King that they've been waiting for. And so they start to praise Him. It's a time of, of celebration. It's a happy time. Because Jesus is entering God's holy city. But as soon as Jesus gets within sight of the city, as soon as he's able to see it, Luke tells us that he stops and he weeps. 
Jesus weeps because he knows what's going to happen in the city. He knows the sins that are about to be committed against him personally and against God. He knows all the things that are going to happen after that point to the city. He knows that the place that was supposed to be God's dwelling place on earth is going to reject the king that he sent them. And so he mourns. It grieves him. And those things should grieve us. I mean, do we ever see Hannibal and think about what goes on in this city and weep? Are we ever brought to our knees over the sin that happens in the world? Something that we should ask ourselves here is is very similar to the question that we ask about our personal mourning over sin. You see, do we, are we upset by sin in the world just because it's sin against God? Or are we just upset by it when it affects us? Are we grieved by, by all the conflicts that happen in the world right now, today, because there's people in those cities that are sinning against God? Or do we just complain because it jacks up our gas prices here? It affects us here, and so that, that's why it bothers us. That's why it makes us mad. Not because these people haven't heard of the gospel. They haven't found faith in Christ. They haven't heard his name preached to them, and so that's why they act the way they do. But instead, we just, we just complain about the way it affects us. Do we grieve over the fact that other people sin against God, or, or do we grieve about the fact that they, they frustrate us, or they annoy us, or they cut us off on the highway? What is it that bothers us about sin in the world? It should grieve us more that people are in a broken relationship with God than it should that they are in a broken relationship with us. So the answer to our first question then of of, of how do we mourn is we mourn with an inward focus. We we first come to grips with our own sin, our personal sin against God. And then we mourn outwardly. We turn our focus outward and we focus on the sin that exists in the world and the fact that These people are in broken relationship with God, and that's what grieves us. So this covers the first part of the main point. The poor in spirit mourn. But what about the comfort that's coming to us? How are we comforted? Well, just like there's two ways that we mourn, there are also two types of comfort. They don't correspond to each other, but there just happen to be two. Last week we noticed that the first and last Beatitudes, the blessing of those, is in the present tense. So it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for both the first and the last Beatitude. But the rest of them, the blessing is all in the future. So it says, for they shall be comforted, they shall inherit the earth, they shall be satisfied. And it goes on and on and on until it gets to the last one. And I explained that this shows us that we feel some of the benefits of the kingdom of heaven now, it's, it's our kingdom now, but that some of the blessings we won't feel until the future. We won't, we won't experience those until his kingdom is fully realized. And so with that in mind, we see two types of comfort here. We see comfort in the present, comfort now, and we also see comfort that lies off in the future. So the first type of comfort, our, our comfort in the present, is that we are comforted by the grace of the gospel. This is, this is redemption in Christ. This is how we experience comfort for the fact that we're poor in spirit and the fact that that causes us to mourn. And this isn't, 
This isn't a brief, one-time comfort. This isn't happiness, that it's momentary. This is lasting comfort that should last throughout our life. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about a, about a letter that he wrote them that upset them. He says this about grief. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul says that the true godly grief or true godly mourning produces repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. And what he means is that that once we really get what our sin is, once we really mourn over our sin, it will produce repentance. Because once we realize what it is, we're going to want to leave it behind. We're going to have salvation without regret because we won't want to go back to it because we know what it is. Because once we experience the grace of the gospel, once we taste what the comfort is that he offers us, we're not going to want to go back. The present comfort is the good news of the gospel. It's that, that even though we're poor in spirit, even though our, our sins and the state of our hearts and mind cause us to mourn and cause us to grieve, there's comfort coming. Even though we've broken our relationship with the God of the universe, He still sends us comfort. He sent His Son to live the life that we couldn't live. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And he never had to mourn over sin because he never sinned. There was no personal sin for him to mourn over. And even though he lived a perfect life, he bore our sins on the cross. All of our sins. All the sins we've, we've sinned up to this point in our life. All of them that we committed earlier today, all of them that we'll commit tonight, and all of them that we'll ever commit in the future, he bore all of them on the cross. And then, as if, as if that wasn't enough, as if doing all that wasn't enough, he rose again, taking back his life on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes on our behalf. The present comfort that we experience, that Jesus talks about here, is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is the comfort. That everything that he did, all of his life, all of his death, the whole work of Christ counts for us. For those of us who trust in him, everything that he did counts for us. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame is placed upon him and taken away from us. And all of His righteousness is given to us. His grace covers us. And that is how the Gospel is our comfort in the present. But there's also a second type of comfort. And that's that the Gospel is also our comfort in the future. You see, so many of the blessings of salvation lie in the future. We've only tasted all the comfort that the gospel can bring now. 
Now we rejoice that we can come boldly before the throne of God in prayer and in worship. But then we're actually going to be before the throne of God. Now we rejoice that that one day in the future, we're not going to have to fight against sin anymore. But then the, the very thought of sin is never ever going to creep in our mind again. Now we rejoice that sickness and disease and death will one day get fixed. But then all the wrongs are going to be finally righted. And we'll see the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see and the dead live forever. Listen to this passage from the end of Revelation. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That should be comforting to us. Every night before Dinah goes to bed, we we read to her out of a Bible called the Big Picture Story Bible. And, I mean, I can't, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's fantastic. But a few nights ago, because I was, as I was thinking about the sermon, I read to her, just that happened to be where we were, the section on Revelation. And there's this picture in the Bible that is just is stuck in my mind, and I've thought about it a lot since, I've, since I saw it. And it's the Apostle John. He, he's waking up from the vision and there's, there's tears in his eyes and he's reaching at his desk for, for a pen and for paper. Because he's, he just, it's like he's frantically awaking so that he can write down everything that he's seen. At this point in John's life, he, he was imprisoned on an island. Christian tradition tells us that, that before this point, the Romans boiled him in oil, and he survived. So the guy had been boiled in oil, he'd been sent on this island, and he was locked up. He's probably near the end of his life, and and Jesus gives him this vision of of the way things are going to be at the end. He gives him this vision of how everything's going to be fixed, of how all things are going to be made new. I imagine that for John, after he awoke from his vision, after he wrote these things down, that nothing really mattered as much after that. All the little inconveniences that he faced in his life, all his problems, they probably seemed insignificant. It's not surprising that that he ends, after writing down everything that he's seen, he ends by saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. 
what we experience of the gospel at salvation is only a very, very small taste of the comfort that it offers. So much of it lies in the future. In the second beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As those who are poor in spirit, we are going to mourn in this life. We'll probably mourn a lot. We should mourn a lot. But by the grace of God, the gospel begins and ends with comfort. So, no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're faced with this week or how, however big your enemy may seem to you, nothing lies beyond the grasp of this truth. Nothing lies beyond the truth of this message. The gospel touches every single area of life, no matter what it is. Mourning is our response to sin, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. But Christ's response to our mourning is comfort. It's the comfort that comes through the gospel, both at salvation as we we trust in Him by grace through faith. And it's the comfort that is coming to us at the end, that that all the wrongs are going to be righted, that, that everything that is wrong about the world now is going to be redeemed, it's going to be restored And that's what we're waiting for. That's what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the good news isn't just good news but that it's also comforting news. And that it is freely offered to all of us. And by grace through faith in your Son, that our sin is laid upon Him, or that that He paid the penalty for it, and that His righteousness is given to us. And because of that, we know and we can have confidence that not only can we come boldly before your throne now, but that one day we'll actually find ourselves before it in reality. Father, I pray that as we turn to this, this time of response, that you would send your Spirit to help us apply this message to our heart. Lord, that you would convict us of sin. Convict us of of how we've failed to mourn sin rightly. Help us to reconcile ourselves with you and reconcile ourselves with others. Lord, and prepare ourselves to glorify you with, with the way we live our lives this week. Father, we thank you for your Son. Lord, and that His gospel touches every single area of our life. It's in Your name we pray.